You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning, everybody. Again, for those of you that are returning and uh, um, for those of you that are new, good good to see you. Uh, we're going to read from John chapter 2. Uh, and, uh, of course, in the old church, you know, the original churches, they didn't just have... Not everybody just had a Bible in their fing- at their fingertips, you know. They they had to listen uh, to a person who read publicly, and and uh, they had to be good listeners. It's a little, we're a little different. We because we all have Bibles anytime we want them, we don't listen very well sometimes when we're reading because we're just like yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, but I'm I'm going to read it nonetheless, and I'm going to give you a little advice on reading because it's hard to read. I don't know about you. I'm a terrible reader. I'm very good at watching TV. I'm a professional. I was when I was little, and it's carried on into adulthood. It's like riding a bike, you know. Uh, but reading is harder for me. So uh, one uh, advice someone gave me was that uh, it was Aristotle uh, that if you um, if you want to understand if you want to think you understand something, you know, you have to understand the whole of it, and that means you have to understand all of its parts and how they relate to one another. Like a car engine, you you can't just say, well, a car engine has uh, spark plugs and, and an alternator and uh, and so that's now you understand the car engine. You know, it's not enough to just list out the parts. You've got to understand how they work together and stuff. So if you want to understand the story of the Bible, you have to understand all of its parts and then how all those parts relate to one another. Okay, and that's not always so easy. That takes some time because the writers pack a lot of content into very small amounts of data in their uh, writing. Okay, So on the third day, chapter 2, verse 1, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, which sounds a lot less rude in Greek than it does in English. Just to, be, just to be clear, there's actually nothing rude in the Greek by referring to his mother as woman. It's a literal translation, but doesn't convey the idea anyway. It's more like ma'am. Um, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, like the wedding coordinator. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now having become wine, he didn't know where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew, along with the disciples, of course. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And you listened really carefully, didn't you? Uh, the gist of the, pl- the story, plot, so to speak, is pretty obvious. Uh, the, the place has run out of wine. The mother of Jesus clearly had something to do with the, with the wedding reception. And she approached him and said, uh, they, we got a problem. Yeah, this is not a good problem. Uh, if you've been to wedding receptions, this, this would not be a good problem. So uh, she, he says to her, it's, it's not for you to hurry me on. Right? My hour has not yet come. I mean, it's not for you. She knew he had some ability to solve the problem. She already knew that. And she was pushing him into the public to demonstrate his messianic power to fix the problem. And he says, no, it's not for you to determine the time, the timing 
is not in your control. All right, that's the, and then of course you know what happens. He calls for the water pots, these big giant water pots for cleansing, and they fill them with water, and then they uh, he turns it into wine. They bring it to the wedding coordinator, and he says to the bridegroom, what he says, very famous words, right? You've kept the best wine for last, kind of an idea. Uh, but there's a lot of problems with trying to understand all the parts. The first one is, does John not know Mary's name? He calls her mother a couple of times in the story. So why doesn't it just call her Mary? Or at least Mary the mother. It's kind of an odd little detail. Uh, and then, of course, there's the problem of the pots. Jesus, of course, had at his disposal the ability to, if he wanted to, uh, cause it to rain wine <laughs> out of heaven directly into everybody's glasses or create a wine fountain or whatever. Why do you choose to use these water pots? And then the third thing uh, is why um, is it that at the end of the story, it's amazing how much we've read the story and don't catch this. The final detail of the story is the wedding coordinator saying to the bridegroom, you've kept this best wine for last and the bridegroom had nothing to do with it. And that's literally the last line of the story. You would think if we were reading even at a basic level where we're thinking about it, we would say that's a rather odd way to end a story. He got the wrong guy. How is that like the end, you know, the climax of the story? Okay. So anyway, there you go. There's some things you see. If you're trying to understand all the parts and put them together, it, uh, it gets you thinking a little bit where otherwise you might not think. And I don't know about for you, but if I'm, if I'm noticing things like that and I have questions, it kind of helps me get motivated to read more, get even more motivated if I can solve some of these things, right? So let's hope we do that today. Uh, so the aim of the book of John, as I have said now in these sessions, are, is that it's for the non-believing. It's written to persuade you to believe. So the assumption is you're a skeptic. The opposite of belief is skepticism. So you're not a believer. Uh, and uh, we took a session to talk about what belief is, because John talks about what belief is. He saw Jesus demonstrate and teach on what exactly belief is. And we learned that belief in the Christian sense is not just faith as in some independent power, like people sometimes talk about. If you just have enough belief, then you'll win the national championship this year. Uh, but in John, uh, in Christianity, belief means belief in a person, not just a proposition. It's not just that Jesus rose from the dead but you believe God. If, if someone says they're going to meet me tomorrow at 2 o'clock for coffee, I believe them, and I show up at 2 o'clock. That's believing them. That's different, isn't it? From just believing uh, that uh, uh, pencils are able to write because they're made of lead. That's just a proposition. You know, it's just a sort of a fact. So believing God is what ultimately trust. In other words, trust is what Christianity wants us to trust God. And then we talked last week about the nature of truth. If you're going to believe something, you believe what is true. If you tell me, hey, I've got a lie to tell you, I want you to believe this. There's no chance I'm going to believe it. It's a lie. Why would, that's the very nature of belief is it's, it's placed into things you judge to be true. So we talked about the nature of truth at the level of historical credibility. Historicity is the account John gave us the truth of what happened and are we being told about it in a truthful way and we touched on 
some of the reasons how, how the author tries to, to tell you that. And today is the nature of truth, but a different kind of truth, okay? Something beyond historical credibility. Um, and that's the point of the miracle. Is the miracle true? I talk to a lot of atheists and skeptics. I've got a, every day a few people on our YouTube channel asking me questions that relate to this in one way or another. If I were talking to an atheist, they would be, if you had been talking to me you know, when I was 18 and I was an atheist, I would have said, but is the miracle true? Like, did it happen? actually, this account. I mean, what are you going to say to your friends who don't believe? Hey, Jesus turned water into wine. You should believe in him. That's not going to be very persuasive. <laughs> so what, what do I do with a miracle? Nowadays, we're 2,000 years removed. What's, how is this in any way supposed to bring me to believe in the truth? And the problem, of course, is that the person who's asking, is it true, has only one level in their head of what they mean by that. It's a perfectly good level, by the way. Is it actually true, meaning did it happen? And did it happen according to as it's recorded? That's what we talked about last week. And I, we went into quite, quite a bit of detail of how the author is doing his best to present to you as a reader the account and why you should think it has historical credibility. Now, if that's not enough for you, if you need a miracle or something yourself, personally, you know, in front of you, uh, uh, then obviously there's not much point in talking about the book then. There was no point in talking about the credibility of the book, right? Who cares about the credibility of the book? If in the end you personally need a water to wine miracle, by definition, there's no point in reading the book. There's nothing to discuss about Christianity at last. You just go sit on a mountaintop and wait for your miracle. I'm not poking fun of the person, actually. I'm saying if that's your position, then there's no point in talking about the book because it won't persuade you according to you. But if you actually want to talk about the book, about uh, at, at the level of whether it's history, then John does have some things to think about. So the skeptic's singular concern, usually, I speak mainly from my own experience, what I thought and what people talk say to me, is uh, did the event actually um, happen? Uh, but uh, here's the problem, that John is going to say there's something else going on in this miracle, which Jesus himself intended and that is that the miracle has meaning. It has a message beyond the mere fact that it was a supernatural event. That is a, a valid question. Did it happen and was it supernatural and so on? But there's a more important question to John, which is what was the, the meaning of it? What was its message? And is that meaning true? Is that message true? That's what uh, John is primarily concerned about. Uh, and not only, again, the other level is fine, but it's, uh, this is the higher level, a more important level. Uh, and the reason is because real events can be symbolic. Real events can be symbolic. It is a fact of American history that Barack Obama was elected to the presidency. But it is also a highly symbolic event. Is it not? This is a country that grew in prosperity in its history, in a large portion of its history, uh, particularly the early portion of, it, of the country itself's history. How? Well, through the slave labor of primarily provided by 
African Americans. And yet, here's a country that has now actually elected an African American to the presidency. That is not just a fact of history. It is a highly symbolic event about the state of the country, is it not? It tells you something. It has meaning beyond just that another guy was president. Okay, so real events can have highly symbolic value. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he went on and preached in John chapter 6 about how he was the bread of life. And his sermon on the bread of life is clearly connected to the event. He provided bread supernaturally. It was a miraculous event. But then he takes that event and he preaches a sermon to explain the meaning of the event. And it's at a higher level than the original event. The sermon actually is more important in that it's giving you the meaning, the message of the event, the symbolism, the, the sort of parabolic value. It's a parable of the event, you see. And he does the same when he heals the blind man. And he goes on and he talks to people about blindness, but he's not talking about physical blindness. But another kind of blindness we can all have. So real events can have symbolic value. They can become parables. That's normal. It's not, not every event's like that, but many events can. And in the life of Jesus, John says a number of these events are like this. And there's a big hint that our event is symbolic, isn't there? Because he deliberately chose these water pots as the means of solving the problem, which raises the question, I wonder what that means. And then John cuts the story off when they talk, when they say this you know, commendation to the, to the bridegroom who didn't provide the, the wine anyway. But the fact that John adds that in, even though it's not, it's like it's weird that it's added in even, but that's because John sees something in it, you see. It's got meaning. It's what you call irony. And we'll get to that. And John sees an irony in it. And he wants to include that in the meaning of the story. There's nothing wrong with that. The person actually originally said this. It turned out to be ironic. So it's a nice little part of the story to help reinforce what the meaning uh, of the story is. Okay? So um, the miracles then can be asked. We can ask this question. Is it true in the sense, not just is it historically credible, but is its message true? Is its meaning true? And that truth is actually more important as we'll come to see. Now, as I said, the skeptic will tend to stay down here and uh, ask only one question. Is it historically credible? And they'll apply what method? But the scientific method to that question, right? It allows you to be a skeptic. You just use science to solve the problem. Did this event actually happen? Of course, We've already got a problem, don't we? I mean, I, by the way, I, mean, I would encourage someone to do that. The problem is you can't really use science to solve the problem. It's history. You're already outside of science. It's, his, it's a historical investigation. You can use sort of the method, the, the, the method that Francis Bacon you know, came up with, a very helpful method. Uh, this, what we call the scientific method, can be applied to other disciplines, of course, but, but not in the same way it is to science, not to like nature, to what they call the hard sciences even are, are special, aren't they, from the soft sciences. So you get farther away from the category of science and talking about science kind of makes it look like you don't know what you're talking about. You can't really solve this problem by science, actually. It's a historical investigation. It's a different kind of methodology. Nonetheless, the atheist, the skeptic, will try 
as best they can. And again, I'm not really faulting them for this because science t tends to be more objective for sure. So they're trying to use as objective a, a method to, to solve this and use just mere mental apprehension as unbiased as possible to decide based on cold, raw data, you know, what the truth is. And the historian is trying to do that, but it has huge limitations. The category is not quite the same category as studying uh, mathematical physics and so on, so you, it doesn't quite work. Uh, not the same way, anyway. Uh, so that's a problem then, kind of right out of the gate, uh, is that history doesn't quite allow for the scientific method to be used, so you uh, you can't really be skeptical. You're going to be skeptical about all of history, right? You don't want to say, well, because we can't use the science, scientific method the way we should to solve most of historical questions, the history of events and so on. Therefore, I'm just going to be skeptical about everything in history. I don't even know if Caesar invaded Gaul. You, know, you just can't do that. Like, there's no sense in doing that. Why would you do that? People can write down what happened and be eyewitnesses to it. There's no reason to... You don't always have science to confirm it. Uh, all right, so um, nothing wrong with that. Again, in one sense, trying to strive in that direction, but you're going to come way short of what you, you hope for. Um, the bigger problem is that even if you could do all that, you still couldn't use science to get at the meaning. Science literally is a completely different category from meaning. You couldn't get at the meaning or the message of it. Or of whether that meaning or message is true, unless the meaning or message was merely a scientific claim, which obviously it's not going to be. Okay? Sorry, it's Sunday morning. It's kind of early. I hope you got a lot of coffee in you uh, to try and take on some of this stuff. Uh, I'm trying, believe it or not, to be as simple as I know uh, how, and I'm a pretty simple thinker. So hopefully that's coming across. I don't know. Uh, so anyway, we got to get at the meaning. Uh, what is the meaning, and, and is that true? And how would we how would we decide that? And John, as I said, keeps saying is far more interested in that. Um, so let's just stop and take our bearings. What this means is if you're going to decide on Christianity, is it true? John, the writers who created what we call Christianity, okay? We have Christianity in these books now. That's our access to Christianity. If you want to know with clarity about Christianity, it's in these gospels and letters and stuff. And he's telling us that you, the kind of truth you're going to have to judge is clearly different from the way the typical philosopher would decide on just sort of scientific truth in his world, you know. Philosophy was physics and so on. So, uh, it's, in other words, it's not like just choosing a bank or something. It's more like choosing a spouse. This idea of deciding on the truth of Christianity, am I going to believe it? And no one thinks when they're picking a spouse that you just apply the scientific method and use science and that's the end of it. <laughs> It would be insulting, actually, in, if for even scientists to choose each other based solely on the sort of scientific method. Science, instead, it's, like a, it's, a, it's not that it doesn't have any application, but it's very limited in the, in the thing. So if we're talking about, do you believe Jesus is God come in the flesh, you know, meaning do you believe him? Do you trust him? Um, that's going to require, just like it does in marriage, an intellectual, yes, a mental, but also psychological, emotional, spiritual, if there is such a thing, it's going to require the whole of you because we're talking about not just even a human-to-human -human relationship, we're talking about a relationship with God our maker, God the creator, which would just 
granting he's true at all, it would mean our faith must be complete and total because of who he is. No, there'd be no point in half believing him. It's all or nothing and it's the whole of you. Or it makes no sense. You're just playing games with the claims, okay? All right, so as I'm sure you're wondering, uh, are we going to get to the meaning today? Because this is your last Sunday here at Advent. Uh, and the answer is yes, uh, we are. So um, what is the meaning? All right, the simple meaning is this of the miracle, that we are not forced within Christianity to choose between truth and happiness. That's the main point, I think. You might not have thought that when you first read it, or maybe even the tenth time. Hopefully I'll make the case. But I think that's the gist. And I think we all have to admit that the skeptic is probably going to think that choosing Christianity is a little bit like you're choosing happiness, but you're having to forfeit the truth because you really can't know the truth of it. You say you're a skeptic, so you can't really confirm the truth of this stuff. So in the end, you're just saying, I'll take you know happiness, I guess, eternal life, or whatever it offers as a kind of gamble in life. I'd rather choose that and not lose the gamble, you know. The Pascal Wager kind of approach. The, Christ, the Christian, the religious person, might be actually fearing that that's true, <laughs> if they're honest. That they don't want to scratch too deeply into the truth of these things, or they might find there's not enough truth to confirm it, and that just means, you know, that's kind of scary. So there's this feeling like to choose God is to, is like God is a killjoy, so to choose Christianity, that's how I viewed it when I was outside of Christianity. I thought, well, if I choose that, I got all these rules I have to follow, which are grand limitations on fun. (laughs) And it wasn't hard to see that. I was enjoying fun that I knew would immediately become no-go. And so it was like, that's not very American. (laughs) I want to choose whatever I want to do and nobody can tell me no. And that's, that's basically what it means to live, you know, to have real joy in life. So it was like happiness over here. And then maybe Christianity is true in the end. But if I choose that, then it's just, you know, I give up on happiness. And I think this miracle, it's interesting that it's the first one, is meant to show that we are not forced within Christianity. The choice isn't between truth and happiness. If you saw the movie Vanilla Sky with uh, Tom Cruise or a long time ago, uh, he looked the same. Uh, he uh, he's this, you know, gets in, he's, gets in this car accident. He's, I can't remember if he's about to be engaged or something. But uh, he wakes up and he recovers and he's going on with a really happy life. And then he sort of gets all these little deja vu things and weird things. And then it turns out he discovers that he's, he's um, um, been in a lucid dream state, like a coma state, and they've been feeding into him a reality that isn't real. So he feels like everything's happy, but actually he's horribly disfigured. He's in a hospital and kind of a thing. And, he's, and the goal was... He agreed to this, and then it's been 150 years, and he's waiting till they come up with medicine to fix him enough. Then he comes out of his dream state. But then once he learns this, he has to choose. Does he want to go back to the dream state and be happy, but it's not true? Or does he want to enter into reality and not be happy? And this is the way people think about ultimate reality and Christianity and so on. I won't spoil the ending. Uh, so uh, that, I think, is the gist. Now, how do we get there? Um, well, um, so in our miracle, 
one of the most obvious things about it, it must be a really big, important thing, is that Jesus provides an abundance of wine that will more than satisfy every single person at the wedding reception. If there's one obvious takeaway nobody should miss, it's that Jesus took a situation where the, uh, where, uh, the happiness had kind of run out of the re reception and he restored it tenfold. He, he added a massive amount of joy into the wedding reception. That much is, is as clear as day. But then we shouldn't be surprised. This is the creator. He invented the idea of grapes so that we could turn them into wine and enjoy the delights that come from wine. He invented every delight, every satisfaction, every pleasure we could possibly imagine we could have. He is the source of that. There's no reason to think God would be a killjoy because every joy you've had was designed by him. Why would you think he's a killjoy? And all these little rules, you should assume, it's a pretty safe assumption, logically, it's not easy experientially, but logically, his rules would be designed to promote that joy. Why create the joys in the first place? He's not sinister, he's, he created the joy. <laughs> so, of course he wants us to be happy and fully happy. The fullness of life and happiness. So, that's one of the most obvious takeaways from the story is that God actually genuinely wants to and actively promotes and seeks to produce in us a true, fulfilling satisfaction and happiness. All right? Uh, that's part of the meaning. It has to be because it's so uh, obvious. But then there's the beginning of the miracle, which is a little bit more sobering. And that is the problem. I skipped to the solution, but there's the problem. And the problem is that, um, well, the problem was they had all this wine and then the wine ran out. But now it is a bit of a parable, so don't miss the parable. When I was little, I was forced to go to umpteen Wartman weddings, mostly in northern Minnesota. Okay? I went to a lot of weddings. And I did not enjoy weddings. I want to be clear about that. If I'm, I can be honest now. I did not enjoy them as a 11, 12, 13 year old boy. Uh, you get all dressed up. It's stuffy. You go into a church. Everybody takes the holy water. You go sit down. It's quiet. It's somber. There's a lot of chanting, singing, not the kind of songs I was listening to Kiss, you know, and then you go to here. And then... Uh, You've got all this holiness. People are talking. The, wet, the, the girls wearing a white dress. Not out, you know. So and it's like there's all this talk about holiness, but I'm like, I know, like I know my uncles and aunts. <laughs> Nobody's enjoying this. Like this is obvious. Nobody's enjoying this. Nobody likes this God stuff that much, you know. But I will say this: I love wedding receptions. <laughs> that was nice. We had a lot of alcohol. There was a lot of alcohol, and you were a little kid running around. You could, you know, people were busy and drinking and uh, dancing, you know, dancing. And it's a lot of fun, right? Everybody takes a tie off, and now you get to have real, real fun. Uh, and then uh, you can imagine if, uh, you know, 30 minutes into it, an hour into it, they ran out all the alcohol. 
I don't feel like it would have been as fun. It might not have gone to two or three in the morning, maybe. It's like the keg running dry, you know, when you were in high school. That's it. Everybody goes, <laughs> leaves, you know, leaves the park. Uh, because that's, that was the source of the, the fun, you know. But here's the parable. The wine ran out. That's like life, isn't it? In fact, it's like a lot of weddings. A lot of marriages are like that. All the excitement and the joy going in, and then the wine runs out. Pick anything you want in life that you think will ultimately make you happy. Your job, your kids, your grandkids. Just grab your list. Adventure life, influencer life, whatever it is. Wine runs out. It's a parable, isn't it? And the problem is, first of all, uh, not a problem. The first question is, is it true? Is that hard to accept? Do you do you feel like you have to lie to yourself to keep these goals so in front of you that this I was wrong in nine of the ten things I had to check off in my life that would make me happy, but this tenth one. It's finally going to work. Maybe you just accept that this is true. In fact, it's true by design, actually. God designed it. The wine, of course, is there to promote the joy. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is, if you get it into your head that all this God stuff is the boring... You know, the water pots have been were there for the cleansing... But they had been, they were pushed aside, right? There's no, there's no water pots around anymore. And the, you know, the priest comes to the wedding reception for a while. Then they leave early, mercifully, so people can enjoy themselves. Okay, they're just, you know, shoved into the corner so they can enjoy themselves. So uh, the problem is, if you think ultimate joy and satisfaction is in that wine and all that fun that comes from it, I have some bad news for you. Wine was designed not to make you happy on its on its own, as many people have proven. But neither was the marriage. Neither would the marriage itself do the job. It might be the highest of all potential satisfactions and joys in life, but even it was designed to come up short. Marriage is temporal, isn't it? Jesus said. It is a temporal joy by design. Uh, and God did this, of course, uh, because uh, there's something bigger that will truly make us happy. And he won't let us get happy apart from it. And that is a relationship. Well, what did you, how did Jesus solve the problem? He said, what, where are those water pots again? All that boring stuff nobody thinks is interesting. Holiness. Being clean before God. Having your sins forgiven. Ugh. Really? So Jesus said, you want to get, you want real happiness? There's wine in it, of course. The wine of joy is in it. But you're going to have to get right with God. And you're going to have to stay right with God. And trust Him. 
And in that sense, you'll enter into a whole new kind of relationship if you haven't had it before, if you're not a believer yet. And if you enter into a new relationship with God, you know, it's like entering into a marriage. And that's why the little line at the end of the story is that it's to a bridegroom. Well, he got the wrong bridegroom. There was another bridegroom at that wedding who had come to seek a bride. And he provided lasting, durable, real, timeless joy. But how would you know Jesus could provide permanent joy? Timeless joy. That elusive thing. I saw, uh, what's the Trump son-in-law? What's his name? Uh, Kushner. Kushner? Kushner. I can't remember his name. Anyway, he he said uh, in the last couple of days, I saw an interview with him. He said he was hoping to live forever. I thought he was joking at first, but he went on to say he thinks if his generation doesn't crack the scientific code to live forever, that he will be the last generation that can't live on. I think he was being serious, but you can watch it for yourself to see. But this is real common. I interviewed a guy, a French philosopher, now been a few years, but he told me he thought we were close to being able to live for hundreds of years. But this is the hope, you know. How would you know? I don't know if that I'd prefer that myself, but... Uh, the uh, people want to live timelessly. Well, how, but of course, we don't want to live timelessly. We want to live without sin timelessly. But how would you know Jesus could provide that? How would you know even he's timeless? And the answer is in the miracle. You remember the mother tried to rush him? And he said, no, it's not now, not my time. He, she's not in control of time. He's in control of time. But that's a little wink by John because he wants to make sure that you get that into your head. He's in control of time because the next thing he does is he makes wine instantaneously. There's only two ingredients for wine, you know, grapes and time. Not even McDonald's has conquered that. (laughs) You cannot make time, uh, wine, excuse me, you are a slave to time in that sense. But he wasn't. He could operate independently from time itself. And that's how we know that to enter into a relationship with him is to enter into something that offers timeless joy. All right. Hopefully I did a job of pulling some of that together. Oh, his mother? Why all that emphasis on mother? Well, there's a little verse in Genesis that says that a man shall leave his mother. That's what he was doing, wasn't he? He was leaving his mother. A man shall leave his mother for what purpose? To seek a bride, to cleave unto his wife. He had come to seek a bride, and that's the main message. You can have both truth and eternal happiness and not not forced to choose between the two. And the job for the skeptic is to decide how much of that message is true. How much can you accept of it anyway? My advice is grab onto every bit of it you can accept as true and believe it. Just believe that much and get going down the path of believing Jesus and his word. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. 
and how it provokes trust and belief in us that as we hear these truths, not truths that any of us have come up with, but to hear the truth of your word, that it cultivates trust in you. And we pray we would leave this room trusting you all the more and seeking to cultivate that relationship with you whereby our sins are cleansed and we stay in an abiding relationship with you and obey your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.